Taylor Swift, whether in attendance or not, has ruined NFL football for the foreseeable future. But she's not the only one interjecting herself into the sports world in nauseating and or embarrassing ways. At Saturday's Berkeley-USC football game, a group of protesters squatted midfield with linked arms to protest in support of a professor who was suspended for stalking another professor. Now, many initially thought this was a pro-Palestine thing, but no, just 15 little weirdos begging for justice for UC Berkeley professor Yvonne DeVal, who was suspended after three investigations found she stalked UC Davis professor Joshua Clover for four years and violated orders not to contact him. Yes, that's really what these students were protesting for. You know, I don't know the entire backstory here, but DeVal did admit to going to Clover's mother's home, calling his office multiple times in a short period of time, and attaching a note on his door that read, here lives a pervert. She also keyed his car, contacted his friends, and posted a photo of his partner online. Now, I'd say advocacy for a stalker is a weird reason to protest in the middle of a college football field, but then again, it is California, so none of this should really be surprising. But speaking of California and sports, while making the rounds in China and kissing Chinese communists behind, Gavin Newsom may have also accidentally declared war on China via basketball. Take a look at this. Give him another billion for face masks and I'm sure they'll get over it, Gavin. But jokes aside, the world does seem to be edging closer to a full-blown world war, but you wouldn't know it by looking at Joe Biden's schedule. Off to Delaware again over the weekend. American hostages still in the hands of Hamas. Israel at that time about to launch their ground invasion into Gaza. Your president off to Newcastle, Delaware after campaign receptions. But you know what? Perhaps it is better Joe just stays away. Him and Delaware might be the safest thing for international relations right now. But one request, could he bring the Hamas caucus with him? The left has had an anti-Semitism problem for quite some time now, but it's, this conflict has really allowed it to hit a visible fever pitch. So honest question here, and one I've had for a while. Why do Jewish Americans still vote Democrat? Here to help me break down that enigma and more is journalist Ami Horowitz. It's great to have you from Israel. I have so many questions for you, but I want to start off with that initial question because it really does perplex me. I understand that for generations and decades, Jewish Americans have tended to vote Democrat. But at this point, if they continue to vote Democrat, given all they're seeing in the media and how anti-Israel and anti-Semitic even the Democrat Party seems to be leaning, do you think they are still going to cast their votes for Democrats next November? You couldn't have asked me an easier question to start out with. We have to go right to that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, the answer is um, yes, uh, they will primarily. Uh, real, I'll give you a real quick historical snapshot on why the Jews vote Democrat. It's very simple. It's not particularly complicated. Uh, Jews have never voted their interest uh, because of our history Jews have always looked through the lens of social justice, right? That's just kind of the way we've always viewed the world through that prism. And Jews were actually staunchly Republican ever since um, Abraham Lincoln, because they viewed the Republican Party because of Lincoln as the party of social justice 
for decades, and that flipped like a switch during Roosevelt, right? During Franklin and Roosevelt, I never looked back. And there have been ebbs and flows. Reagan got a significant part of the Jewish vote, relatively speaking, but still a, a significant minority. Um, and the problem is you say, well, what about Israel? Why, you know, obviously Democrats have been very anti-Israel for a very long time, or at least not as not as pro-Israel, certainly as Republicans. Um, and the answer is, unfortunately, or for whatever reason, um, Israel hasn't really been a top 10 issue for Jews for decades. Just It just hasn't. And all the other issues have been, frankly, more important, and that's fine. That's how they voted. Um, now, anti-Semitism is a little bit different. Anti-Semitism wasn't really a big part of the Democratic Party for a long time, uh, but now it has become... Um, let's just call it a significant minority of the Democratic Party and growing. And the squad, of course, as you mentioned, are the purveyors of a lot of that. So um, I, I don't think it'll have a significant impact, but I think there will be some erosion. I think we're going to see more of an erosion of the black vote than the Jewish vote. But who knows? Inshallah, maybe they'll start voting more Republican as time goes on. It really is confusing to me, though, that you wouldn't vote your interest, even if your interest isn't primarily the Jewish religion or Israel itself. There's a slew of other reasons I would think that Jewish Americans would look at the Democrat Party and say that's not really for us. National security, you'd think that Jewish Americans would take national security very seriously given their history. Uh, another thing, oh, what everybody's concerned about, the economy. You'd think they'd look at the way that Democrats are running the economy and think maybe a more conservative approach might be a better approach given how dismal the performance of Joe Biden has been. So it really is frustrating to me. And then when you see these protests in the streets, I mean, obviously a huge Jewish population in New York City, and that's the hotbed right now of a lot of these protests taking over Grand Central with you know, what looked to be a thousand plus people, you see it around the world, but New York really has been the epicenter of this for the last several weeks. Are Jews in New York City even taking a step back? Because they've been told maybe they should be a little concerned when they go out and about in the city. Do you think maybe they're looking at the Republican Party saying, these are the people that have our back, these are the people that want us to feel safe in our own cities, in our own country? If not even just for the reasons of Israel and this conflict, but just for everyday crime purposes. I mean, let's be honest, the Democrats don't have a good track record really with anything. You'd think. I mean, it's why I'm a Republican. Um, I'll say this. I know that uh, anecdotally, if you go down to Florida and you ask gun shop owners who are buying uh, your guns, their answer will be uh, liberal Jews. So uh, let's hope that that's the beginning of an erosion of the support for the Democratic Party among, uh, among Jews. I guess we'll have to wait and see. But I do want to get to obviously some really important topics. We know right now things are, again, um, a hotbed controversy. You've got Israel pushing forward as they had promised to do after weeks of delaying to try to get civilians out. And I think for me, the most frustrating thing that I see in the media and a lot of the celebrities being that there is a, a two sides to this. There's Israel and then there's the pro-Palestinian bleeding heart side. To me, there's not two sides. There's Israel and there's terrorism. But you've seen it firsthand. You're there. You know what's happening. Please tell the American people here that are looking at this through the lens of Queers for Palestine what they're maybe missing in all of this. <laughs> Queers for Palestine. Yeah, I wonder if um, if they, them, show up in uh, Gaza 
I think the question that the Gaza would ask was, do I need one bullet or do I need several bullets to kill you? Because I'm I'm good either way. Uh, you know, I did a um, I did a video uh, last year about I, I went you know undercover. I went to um, not not even Gaza. I went to the moderate Palestinian Authority to find out what it's it like for gay people there. And the answer is uh, not surprisingly, no bueno. Uh, they're being murdered. They're being raped. Um, yet you still have a significant support of the gay community supporting Palestine. It's, it's absolutely bizarre. Um, and, you know, I think what it comes down to, frankly, Tommy, and this is what I think a lot of this intersectional crap comes down to, why does the intersectional thing exist? It's because they're all brotherhoods, they're brotherhood and victimhood, right? They have this, victimhood is the most corrosive emotion that exists, and it is even more powerful than what you would think their basis of, uh, being would be, which is self-preservation of, of being gay, um, human rights, women's rights. All that goes out the window when you have this brotherhood of victimhood, this victimhood mentality. That's what connects these people all together. It's a powerful, horrific human emotion, and this is what has led to it. Um, and yeah, look, Israel is is in a very difficult situation. I was, I've been here for a few days. I got in Tel Aviv. Within the first 24 hours of getting Tel Aviv, 20 missiles uh, were fired at Tel Aviv. And it's um, it's bizarre to me that anybody could take the other side, but they are absolutely are. There's just a lot of idiots out there. And I believe that wholeheartedly. You're right about this victim mentality, these queers for Palestine, reproductive rights for Palestine. I mean, look at some of the signs and it's quite obvious the distress that a lot of young green hairs in America are going through. I feel bad for their mental health. They clearly have issues. But then there is another side that is, quite frankly, just evil. And they're saying, gas the Jews. They're talking about another Holocaust, celebrating that. And it's not just a few, it's many. And it's not just in the United States, it's around the world. I mean, just the other day, you saw a staggering amount of people in the UK taking to the streets for a much similar thing. But I also want to ask you, being that you are there, and I want your take on this. There is calls for a ceasefire, for Israel to just stop, or for Israel to have more targeted attacks, whatever that really means. If you understand, and I'm sure you far better than me understand how Hamas and insurgencies works, uh, they don't have a front line of battle like everybody else. They operate in guerrilla warfare. They hide under civilians and under hospitals and schools. But if Israel were to just stop today and have this magical ceasefire that so many are calling for, what would happen to Israel tomorrow. If you call for a ceasefire, all you're calling for is helping Hamas rearm, reorganize, uh, and begin its process of trying to slay Jews again. That's what a ceasefire would call for. Look, I get why people ask for it, right? They're naive, they're stupid, in some cases they're evil, yes. Um, I think most of them are frankly naive, if I'm being overly generous. And they don't understand. They're like, look, here's the thing. Then they go, well, look how many thousands of civilians have been killed. First of all, we have no idea how many civilians have been killed because you can't believe the numbers coming out of Gaza. They're all numbers counted by Hamas. But let's just assume for a moment the numbers are accurate, seven, 8,000 people, not civilians, people have died. I want to make something very clear about how the IDF does business. So in the last wars Israel has had, we don't know this one yet, but I assume it will be similar numbers to the one they've had in the past. In the last few conflicts with Gaza, you're talking about the most densely populated place on planet Earth, right? Where the where Hamas is using its own people's human shields, right? Understand the circumstances in which the IDF is operating within. Even with that, 
Israel kills for every militant or every terrorist or every combatant, they kill one civilian. It's one to one. Now, that may sound like a lot, but to give you some context, the other one of the most moral armies on the face of the planet is the U.S. Army and NATO. And when they have been fighting in Afghanistan, one of the most open places to operate, they kill between three to five civilians per militant uh, combatant, whoever you want to call them, right? To give you a sense of the difference between them, the IDF goes way, way out of its way. In a lot of places, putting themselves in danger in order to make sure civilian deaths are as limited as possible. But you can tell that to people that are blue in the face. They don't want to hear it because at the end of the day, they just hate Israel. And by the way, when somebody says they hate Israel, guess what? They also hate America. That Venn diagram between people who hate Israel, if you do it between those who hate America, it's the same exact circle. There's no difference whatsoever. What I find so frustrating here is, you know, what you just described, but it's what we're hearing and it's people saying, oh, we need a ceasefire because of the civilians. They're not able to get electricity and Internet and food and water. I don't understand what these people would have Israel do because they're trying to eradicate a terrorist network that uses people as human shields. So what is Israel to do? Sit back and say, well, there's civilians there and we can't harm a civilian. Civilians that by and large have been raised to hate us and want to kill us, even if they're not a part of Hamas proper or not. They still hate Israel. They hate Jews. They hate Christians because that's what they were raised to believe. I feel badly for their situation, but that is their situation. And I'm not sure the way people can look at Palestine, Gaza, and they can say, oh no, they're flourishing the way that they were pre-war. They were flourishing a flourishing society. We know that that's not the case. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that area of the world could be prosperous. That area of the world could be home to not only natural resources and, and services and products, but it really could be an area that's desirable, but it hasn't been largely because they allow it to be controlled and elected a terrorist network to represent it. So as somebody who's seen it, who's someone who's been around these, these people, which many Americans have not, what can you tell us about this part of the world pre-October 7? Well, let me tell you this, is that by comparison, if you want to look at the West Bank, right, which isn't controlled by Gaza, um, the West Bank, in large part because of Israel and the business they do with Israel, is one of the most, if not the most, it actually is not one of those, it is the most prosperous Arab area in the Levant. So between Jordan and Egypt and Lebanon, the people, the Palestinians who live in the West Bank are the absolute most prosperous, pro prosperous, except for one group, Arab Israelis. The ones who live inside Israel are the most prosperous of all the Arabs um, in that area. Uh, yes, of course they could be living in a heaven. They live in a, the, the, Gaza is this gorgeous area along this gorgeous stretch of beach next to Sinai and Israel. And it's funny, when Israel was there, the, the kibbutzim that Israel had, by the way, don't forget that Israel uprooted, you know, I love when people say that there can't be a two-state solution because uh, the, the Israelis have too many settlements. Well, you know, guess what? Israel has dismantled settlements in the past. It did so with Sinai with a peace agreement with Egypt. It did so with the Palestinians. It uprooted. The only people who were thrown out of their homes in Gaza were Jews. They were thrown out of their homes. And guess what? When they lived there, it was Garden of Eden, gorgeous. And they left amazing, gorgeous things, homes and, and these hot houses for one, some of the best vegetables in the, in the neighborhood. And guess what? 
They were all torn down and torn up by Hamas to use that infrastructure for their terrorism and to build rockets and to try to kill more Jews. That's what happened. Sorry, Gazans, this is what you get when you allow your, your government to kill 1,400 Jews. This is what happens. I'm sorry. It breaks my heart, but that's the reality of war. Don't kill 1,400 Jews. You're not going to get screwed over. And maybe don't kill 1,400 Jews and don't really declare a guerrilla war on Israel that supplies your electricity and your water and a lot of humanitarian aid. Because when you attack the hand that feeds you, don't be surprised if that hand isn't so willing to feed you anymore. People have lost and don't have any concept of what war means. And it's not this feel-good thing that the green hairs in the street have misunderstood for so long living in the United States quite comfortably, might I add. And that, to me, is another really frustrating part. But moving forward and looking down the road here, is this going to be weeks long, months long, years long? Do you see a world where the United States is involved, where the world is really in a World War III type situation, Iran's involved, and we end up with another endless war that really, until we pull out disastrously, if we have a Democrat in charge again, really sees no end? No, no, there will absolutely be an end. It will be sooner rather than later. Um, you're talking months, certainly not, 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 not weeks and definitely not years. Um, no, it's good. Israel's going to do what it has to do. Uh, now, the, the better question is, what will be the end result in Gaza? That's anybody's guess. Uh, will it be replaced? First of all, will they be able to destroy it, or will um, the world and the Democratic Party uh, pull Israel back before it's, it's done? Uh, that we don't know. Um, but I will tell you this, is that the world will go back to normal. I know that, look, one of their goals was to disrupt the Saudi-Israeli peace plan. That was clearly, by design, one of the reasons they wanted to do. And the truth is, the Saudis made it clear. They go, look, we're going to wait. When this is over, we're going back to the peace process. We want this deal done. We don't care. The Saudis never cared about the Palestinians. They just gave them, they just spoke with them with our support with words and, and funding us for a certain for a certain point, because it was at the time it was better for Saudis to use them as a weapon against Israel, because at the time they were in a technical war with Israel and they had they were very anti-Israel. That time is gone. The Saudis now understand that they are better off as a partner with Israel. And guess what? They don't care two craps about the Palestinians. This is stuff we already knew going in, and now it's been proven. And they're going to go back to the deal. And what? And at the end of the day, the Gazans are going to look at themselves and they go, "What do we do this for? What? To what purpose? To what end? What have we accomplished? They accomplished nothing. Just thousands of their own people, heartbreakingly dead, because they allowed this." fanatic government, this radical government, this radical terrorist group allowed them to try to slaughter thousands of Jews. That's what it comes down to. And I, I'm sorry, they, they, at the end of the day, the only people to blame for these terrific, horrific civilian deaths in Gaza is Hamas. That's it. Yeah. Need better representation, need better leadership. Uh, they're not alone. We need better representation and better leadership in the USA as well. But I thank you for bringing me that insight. Um, I'm hoping that maybe we might see a little bit of a cultural shift in the Jewish population heading towards the next election, might realize what is indeed not only best for that community, but best for Americans at large, best for the world at large. Maybe we don't have another endless war if we get a strong Republican in office. Here's to hoping for that. But thank you for taking the time and all that you do. And be safe over there. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Tommy.
All right, tomorrow is Halloween, and while there's really nothing scarier than the Democrat agenda and their shadow government, let's have some spooky and non-political fun with my next guest. Brian and Mallory Beleza founded Tennessee Paranormal based in Memphis, Tennessee. They help divine and explain what is or is not a paranormal occurrence and strive to offer some peace of mind to those affected by them. They also conduct public ghost tours in addition to private investigations, and they join me now. Brian and Mallory, it is so great to have you both just down the road from us in Memphis, Tennessee. Obviously, tomorrow is Halloween, so we're all trying to get in the spooky spirit. The news is really grim right now, so we want to have a little fun. I want to just jump right into it. Tell me a little bit about Tennessee Paranormal and some of the spooky things that are happening right here in our volunteer state. All right, so uh, we're with Tennessee Paranormal, um, and let me tell you, Honestly, Middle Tennessee is probably the most haunted besides, uh, you know, Southern Mississippi is probably the most haunted places that I've ever been to, that Mallory's ever been to. Um, there's plenty of locations there. Uh, we we host primarily out of Lynchburg. So um, down a little south of Nashville, uh, we got some 200 locations out there, which is pretty cool. Um, the jail and the funeral home. And then, you know, just the just the sheer amount of locations within middle tennessee that you can easily have access to uh, just by contacting the uh the paranormal teams that run them or whatever the case may be it's it's phenomenal if you ever want to get a scare is the reason for the high level activity civil war related in large part i would assume that that probably has a lot to do with it absolutely so um so if you go anywhere whether it be mississippi alabama tennessee you're generally going to get a lot of activity um, most of the places we've gone to are old Civil War hospitals, things of that nature. So they all have some ties to the Civil War. I'm not going to say that every paranormal entity or any entity we run across is from the Civil War era, but I believe that it does have uh, added, added, you know, uh, layer to it. I got to ask you guys, because you guys are experts in this, and I've often wondered this, and I don't think I've ever gotten a great answer, and nobody really knows, but in your mm -hmm. expertise, in your analysis, what is the scenario or the condition that makes an earthly body, once it's deceased, hang around? Is it a tragic event? Is it a soul being trapped for a specific reason? What can you give us? What information can I glean out of you guys to help me understand why there are certain entities that tend to stick around on Earth more so than others? Okay, so I'll, I'll let Mallory take a stab at this one about the entities that about the entities that why they stick around after they've passed. Why do you think so? Okay. So what I believe, um, I think that, you know, we hear a lot of people talk about unfinished business. Um, you've heard that plenty of times. Um, you've heard the, you know, that loved ones stick around where their favorite places were. Um, you know, and like you said, who, who really knows uh, the spirits we've come across in the past? It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they are uh, specific to that location. There's attachments, things of that nature. People can can bring things into a location. Um, what they're actually sticking around, you know, why they're sticking around, who knows? But I can tell you that we've gotten some great stuff as far as, uh, you know, names and birth dates and things of that nature that validate the, the person that's at that location. So, you know, I personally think it could be something as simple as, you know, they are going between two realms, you know, they're, they're, they're in and out. They don't have a body anymore. So 
what's to confine them to one location or one physical area in this physical world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if I were a ghost, I'd probably want to be in Florida or Hawaii, although Tennessee is a beautiful place to be. So you have to tell me, when you're doing your expeditions, when you're screening for paranormal activity or somebody calls you in, what are the signs that you look for that tells you, oh yes, there is a spirit here, there's an entity here, how do you recognize it, and how do you separate it from natural occurrences or things that we might all see every day that really have no spooky nature to them that are just uh, a coincidence? So I'll tell you that uh, your your biggest, you know, we, we see the TV shows, you see all the fancy equipment that everyone has and not to discredit that equipment. We have a lot of that same equipment and it's really to validate viewers, but you know, anybody that's watching a video or something like that, but your best piece of equipment is going to be yourself. You know yourself. So, so we've been doing this long enough to where we understand how, how we feel in certain environments. Um, you know, I, I try to tell people all the time, it's something as simple as when your hair stand up on your on your arms, when you get scared, there's a difference between scared and not being alone. Um, and, and if you do this long enough, you're going to understand what that difference is, certain telltale signs for us. So your our best piece of, of, of equipment is ourselves. And when I walk into a location and I feel like we're not alone, nine times out of 10, we're correct. Wow. All right. Well, give me a give me a story if you can. I know my viewers are dying to hear a ghost a ghost story. One of the experiences or encounters that either or both of you have had that was one that stands out in your mind. So we have uh, quite a few stories, actually. Um, I'd say one that specifically sticks out in my mind is going to be the um, is going to be the Gaines House. So the Gaines House is in uh, uh, Gainesboro, uh, Tennessee. And it is a little north of Nashville, uh, I guess, north northeast. Um, and we were having a spirit box session. You can see the video on our Facebook if you want to. But uh, it was it was a spirit box session where, you know, half the time that that spirit box isn't, you know, it's just a tool. So we we look for intelligent responses based off radio waves as it's sweeping through. So if we get like a full sentence, uh, then we know it went across like three or four radio waves. We know that that's something. But it is intelligent. That's the question. So we were getting some intelligent responses. And I was in a different location in the house. Uh, our One of our team members, Misha, was in a, in a separate location. And then Mallory over here was in a whole other location asking questions. We were doing what's called Estes Method. Um, so Misha had the headphones on. She was listening with her headphones to the spirit box and just blurting out whatever she heard. And that was based off the questions Mallory was asking. If you would, would you please give us a name? He's back. He's back. Uh, uh, he is. He just walked in. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's good. We love comments. What's your name? Brian, what's your name? And it was intelligent questions. It said there was eight people in the house, and it's, uh, there was eight people in the house at that time. Eight people. Okay. Is She just said eight people. Is that correct? Is there eight spirits, or is there eight of us in here? How many is in this house? There's eight of us. There's eight. eight. Oh. It talked about a cat ball to say, I'm going to touch that cat ball. The cat ball ended up starting going off, which is just a bunch of lights due to proximity, um, and no one was near it. And then it said, or it said Amisha's name, which was pretty interesting, because um, that's an interesting name. Uh, it's not something you hear every day. And then it said, are you ready? Go up. Brian's gonna go up. Does, does he 
you want the device to turn off the motion detector, I think it's right there. Are we disturbing you? Where did he go? He went up. And somebody said, are you ready for what? And I'm upstairs by myself. I look to my left and I see a black mass come right at me. And this is, we're all separated. So we don't, each other doesn't know what's happening at that moment, but it was all in one shot. It all happened at the same time. And let me tell you, when you see a black mass coming at you and the whole room that you can see ambient light just goes completely dark. Yeah, it's a sign to get out of there. So I ran. I'm sitting right here. Here, I'm sitting right in this doorway, right here, and I'm looking, see the light on that, see the light on that, the, that, that, that line of light on that fireplace right there? Well, I'm sitting here in between the, this hallway and the room. And the threshold? Yep, and I, all of a sudden that light went away. It just went away, and I, I was like, what? And then I saw, like with my own eyes, I saw a shadow and it just started coming at me. And I'll also add that the spirit box asked, go up. It did. The, the spirit before box he went up, up there. That is, that is correct. It said, go up. I was following it. You know, I was kind of letting my, my intuition go with it. And I went up there and we got that activity. So are you ever concerned that a spirit is going to attach itself to either of you and go home with you? Because that's something that would terrify me doing what you do yeah you know um i've had two attachments so far in my um investigating experience uh one of them was pretty quick it was a uh, it was a uh, unfortunate event that happened on a property as we drove away i started crying hysterically for no reason i had no control over my own emotions it went away pretty quick in about 15 minutes once we told it it couldn't stay with us and then the second one was from mcraven down in mississippi it's a, a pretty haunted house I heard a specific sound, and this sound lingered in my room for about a month, giving me insomnia. I couldn't go to sleep. Finally, my wife heard the same sound. She was like, I know what you're talking about. And I said, yeah, and then it just went away on its own. Uh, but, you know, who knows? I mean, we can protect ourselves with crystals and sage and all these other things. Um, personally, I just, you know, I close myself off and I open myself up. I tell myself, hey, you know, you can't, you can't come with me. Um, and I've noticed that the times I didn't do that was the times I got an attachment. So I'd say it works, but yes, it, it is a fearful thing. So what is the difference between just a ghost experience and something that might be demonic or something that you would see in the exorcist where it's a demon inhabiting something, where it's a demon that has clung to something? Can you explain to me what the difference is and how you can distinguish between the two? So I will say this uh, before actually answering that question is I don't believe that we, um, that I at least, or any of my teammates have come across anything what we truly believe to be a demon. We hear that all the time on TV shows and things like that. Or you hear a lot of teams saying, oh, there's a demonic presence. Um, but have we actually felt a demonic presence? I don't think we have. I think we felt hostile presences before. And those, you know, you want to tread lightly, obviously, with those, because you don't know it can go either way. Um, I'd say if I was to come across a demonic presence, um, I would probably know the feeling based off of everything that we've experienced so far. Um, things like poltergeists and stuff like that, those tend to happen, as well as mimicking. Um, we have something called a doppelganger. So uh, our, one of our teammates uh, or the other owner of Tennessee Paranormal, her uncle Jory. He had a doppelganger, for example, which um, pretty much mimicked what he was saying in his own voice. 
So that could have probably been perceived as something that possibly could have been demonic, which is the closest thing we've come to. Um, but, you know, other than that, I don't I really don't know um, how we would handle that situation. It's to be honest. a small percentage, even based off of the Catholic Church, when um, when, you know, they do exorcisms, when they go, um, they it turns out that only it's a very, I mean, like 1% or something like that. It's a very small percentage, but just like in, you know, with people, there's negative evil people in the world. That doesn't mean they're demonic, you know, or that they have any type of an attachment to them. Um, some people are just uh, as above, so below. And believe it or not, a lot of things can be explained too. So what people might perceive as paranormal or demonic or whatever the case may be is something as simple as a light flickering because the ac kicks on and that's a normal thing or or the pressure between the front door and the back door that's why your door is opening on its own and I mean, the first things that we check for when we go into a location we actually take uh, a while that's the well, once we set up and, and everything that's what we do we sit there and just listen to the natural sounds of the environment because every place is different every house is different um, they're going to, you know, we know what it sounds like when the air kicks on. Does that make the lights flicker? You know, we just, we want to know, are these, are there rational explanations for things? And also if we hear or see something while we're investigating in this unfamiliar location to us, um, are we going to be able to debunk it as, you know, being not paranormal? And most things are not paranormal. That's what makes it cool is when you find something that is, you know, it's exciting. really exciting. Yeah. So what do you do to expel something like that? If it's not an exorcism, if it's just somebody that says, hey, listen, there's this spirit that's living in my house and I don't care if it's friendly. I don't like it. I don't want it here. Are you guys able to rid the premises of that spirit, whether it be good or whether it be feisty? No. And I say and, I, and we kind of actually base kind of our, our uh, when people ask for residentials and things like that, we tell them on the, in the beginning, hey, we are investigators. We come in and we'll validate certain things for you. But as far as getting rid of something, I mean, we're talking about some things that have probably been around for centuries, you know, so it's really hard to say that we can come and get rid of them. Uh, we have a shaman, yep. you know, friends yep. and things like that that we can refer people to, but there's ways to not our specialty. Yeah, with the church and um, obviously with, you know, um, certain certain mediums can probably do something, but we don't have anything like that on our team where, you know, we have the ability to do that. No, do we ever, I mean. I'm not going to say I never want to try, but it's something that I kind of don't want to dip my feet into personally because you never know what you're going to get on the other side. Specs when it comes to the owners of the property, are they religious? What is their religion? You know, what are their preferences of, you know, it's their property. What did they, you know, there may be things that they disagree with. We want to be as respectful as possible. So that's always something that we consider too. Last two questions for you. One, because I just thought of it. Do you ever have a situation where you have a client, you have somebody that tells you that the animals, the pets in their home are reacting a certain way? Because I know that sometimes pets have an intuition, dogs, cats have an intuition that human beings do not. They bark at a certain entity, it doesn't look like there's anything there, they do it routinely. Have you guys experienced that? And my second question for you is, I just saw something, being that it's almost Halloween, a priest talking about Ouija boards and saying if they are real, and if you don't want to invite a spirit, don't use it. So let's start with pets, and then I want to go to Ouija boards, because I have just so many questions, but I do have to wrap it up. So in regards to pets, if I could take my dog with me everywhere we investigate, I would, uh, because he would catch something 
way long before I would catch something. Let's just say that. Um, te- yes, dogs have that sense. Our pets in general have that sense. We were just, thinking about, we were just talking about it last night, as a matter of fact, um, with our dogs. But yes, they have a sense and they can, generally speaking, if you're not, if they're alert to something, um, then pay attention because it might be something that you can't see. Um, and there's an actual physical explanation for that when it comes to frequencies and, you know, those types of things they can feel when a frequency is different you know they're they're so sensitive to that and then the other the other thing as far as ouija boards <laughs> so uh my wife will tell you i i don't mess with ouija boards for a reason and that's because you know you are inviting something in that you may not want in there there's a reason why i believe we haven't run across a lot of any demonic presences it's because we're very careful with what we do for one um and two I think that adding a tool like that, which is very real, um, that can that can add a layer that we don't want necessarily. It's great to communicate with the other side. Don't get me wrong, we've done it. But communicating with something you don't want to communicate with, that invites that in there. And, and we don't we don't want any part in that. So what part of the board makes it something? And I do have to wrap up, but I'm so curious about this stuff if you couldn't tell. What part of having a Ouija board in it itself? attracts some kind of a force that you wouldn't want around more so than me just trying to talk to spirits on my own. What is it about that physical board that makes the difference? So I, I believe, uh, and this is just a belief, I believe that it, it comes from ancient um, from ancient rituals and things like that. So that's kind of a, a layer to it. Also, probably where the board comes from, you know, I mean, not every Ouija board is going to give you what you want. Not every Ouija board is going to have to communicate with the other side. But if you get a legit Ouija board out there that's been either passed down through families or that is made from a certain kind of um, environment or, or element, then it would definitely be that's the reason why it is going to possibly bring in something that you don't want it to bring. Yep, not going to mess with that. Well, thank you, too, for answering all of my questions. You guys, Tennessee Paranormal in Memphis, Tennessee. So for those that live in the volunteer state or those that are visiting, we encourage you to check out uh, Tennessee Paranormal if you want a spooky good time. Thank you guys so much for taking the time with me today, and happy Halloween. You, too. And if you don't mind, if you don't mind me saying, uh, you can check us out on Facebook.com, obviously, and you can check us on TennesseeParanormal.com as well. Um, come check us out and check out what we have to offer. We host investigations for you guys. So if you ever want to try to investigate, you're just uh, curious, hit us up. We'll, we'll take care of you. It's a good time. No, oh, it sounds really like fun. it. Thank you guys so much for taking the time. And I'm sure you have a lot of people that will take you up on it. And uh, maybe next time, next Halloween, I want more stories. So I hope to oh, have you back. We'll be here. <laughs> yeah, right. absolutely. Appreciate it. Thank you, Thank guys you so, so much. much. Appreciate it. All right, in other news that's scary, well, for those of you who chose to or were coerced to get the COVID vax, the FDA is finally coming clean and acknowledging side effects. And I have some final thoughts. Well, folks, not only does the COVID vaccine and all of its boosters not prevent infection or spread, Now there's this. A new FDA-funded study shows that older adults who got last year's version of the booster plus a high dose of flu vaccine in the same visit, you know that two-for-one thing Taylor Swift's boyfriend is pushing in his Pfizer ad? Well, they have the potential for increased stroke risk. Now experts 
Don't want to freak you out, okay? They say this research is just preliminary and other factors may be at play, like older people already being at higher risk for stroke. Ironic, because that's kind of the same thing some of us said about the people dying of COVID in the first place, that perhaps COVID alone wasn't this boogeyman, but rather COVID paired with underlying issues in old age. Hmm. The results for this flu plus COVID vax equals stroke risk study haven't been peer-reviewed yet, though, through the normal scientific process either, so experts don't want folks to get too concerned. Again, ironic because some of us were a little worried about that experimental COVID vaccine that was rushed through with emergency authorization and didn't go through the normal scientific process. This all feels so icky. It feels like we've been lied to and the truth is finally creeping out, but too little, too late. The same goes for the COVID protocols that pre and post-dated the almighty vaccine. Now, years later, after lives, businesses, educational potential, social skills, and our economy has been eroded by the lockdown, shutdown, tyrannical COVID policies, some that originally pushed them are sorry, like this NYU professor who once pushed for more, more COVID rules and more COVID tyranny, but now he just wants some grace. Well, I was on the board of my kid's school during COVID. I wanted a harsher lockdown policy, and in retrospect, I was wrong. The, the, the damage to kids of keeping them out of school longer was greater than the risks. But here's the bottom line. Myself, our, our great people, the CDC, I'd like to think the governor, we were all operating with imperfect information and we were doing our best. So yeah, it, it's, it's, well. So let's, but let's learn from it. Let's learn from it. Let's learn from it. Let's hold each other accountable. But let's bring a little bit of grace and forgiveness in the show that was No grace, no forgiveness, none. You ruined lives, some irreparably so. You don't get an oopsie whoopsie sorry. And same goes for all of the so-called leaders who locked us down, masked us up, and coerced Americans to get the jab. You don't get mercy or grace or amnesty for that either. And I include several Republicans on that list too. But there is one silver lining in all of this. We've learned our lesson. Well, not the green hairs who are still masked to the forehead, likely unbathed and probably out there right now protesting for Hamas. You know, y'all are lost causes. But for the rest of us, I'm proud of us because a couple months ago, the Democrats really tried to bring COVID back from the dead, and they failed because we collectively put our feet down, and guess what? The COVID fear pornographers have basically been silenced and put out of business. We have the power to stave off tyranny, and we have the ability to demand freedom. We just got to do it more often and never, and I mean never, let them get away with it again. Those are my final thoughts from Nashville. God bless and take care.